out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. This is Willful Blindness, how a network of narcos, tycoons, and CCP agents infiltrated the West, Chapter 15, Compromised Nodes. Money laundering was the shared interest in Vancouver, but something else was definitely happening. The Big Circle Boys and Chinese intelligence players had started with casinos, and they moved into real estate and finance, Canada's soft spots for economic infiltration. My sources had been telling me some things that I couldn't believe until I saw the evidence myself. These were people who understood criminal intelligence and geopolitics. They talked about the convergence of organized crime and state actors in China and Iran and Mexico and Russia. They were saying the impacts of money laundering that I was uncovering in Canada went a lot deeper than fentanyl deaths and soaring housing prices in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal. They were saying transnational money laundering endangers democracy. It erodes the rule of law. It's a national security threat. But you need to look deeper, they said. They look at who is standing behind the transnational criminals. More to the point, who is standing above them holding a protective umbrella. It was frustrating. It was a frustrating situation for the people talking to me. Canada has excellent criminal intelligence. But what the RCMP and CSIS know about the Chinese Communist Party's collusion with the Big Circle Boys and Chi Lopsi's super cartel never makes it to trial. What my sources were describing was essentially a modern version of the map laid out 20 years earlier in the controversial Canadian intelligence report, Sidewinder. And when the people who wrote Sidewinder saw my reporting on ePirate and Paul King Jin, it set off alarm bells. Michael Juno Katsuya, a former CSIS Asia Pacific desk chief, recognized the metastasized node he had identified way back in the 1990s. Gangsters, spies, and industrialists covertly operating under the Chinese Communist Party. But there were new convergences. After 2015, my sources started seeing kingpins of the Chinese underground banking cartel brushing up against state actors from Iranian narco-terrorism networks. For example, e-pirate surveillance records filed with the Cullen Commission showed a Mideast organized crime suspect was registered to a vehicle used in Paul King Jin's alleged casino and water cube spa operation. And Mideast organized crime suspects served as bodyguards for Jin and his superior, these records show. And the Sinaloa cartel was also in the mix, but Chinese state actors definitely ran the show, intelligence experts told me. Money laundering was the shared interest in Vancouver, but something else was definitely happening. The big circle boys and Chinese intelligence players had started with casinos, and they had moved into real estate and finance, Canada's soft spots for economic infiltration. But Beijing had a high-tech long game. And Vancouver was becoming a global technology node for narcos, state actors, and cyber criminals. This was fascinating stuff, but I approached it with some caution. It sounded like a spy novel. Part of it was my innate Canadian sense of insulation. 
Although I had uncovered lots of money laundering in, in BC casinos and real estate, I had grown up with a sense that my country was a bastion of uprightness and stability. Corruption and wars and spy plots happened in other countries. So I would nod with interest when I heard these geopolitical crime tips. But inside I would think, this is Canada. I'll believe it when I see it. My mind was opening, though. There were major deals happening in Vancouver that made no sense from a national security perspective. In August of 2017, I wrote a story with my post-media colleague, Doug Kwan. How a murky company with ties to the People's Liberation Army set up shop in BC. We explained how China Poly, a 95 billion arms trading real estate and industrial behemoth owed by red princeling families was welcomed with open arms in Vancouver. We reported that China Poly had already been accused of numerous corruption and smuggling cases worldwide. They were deeply involved in Xi Jinping's neo-imperialist imperialist belt and road infrastructure projects. Their branding depicted the world as a go board, the ancient Chinese game in which the winner occupies territory to dominate the loser. China Poly often turned up in sketchy dealings with third world dictators and arms traders. The United States accused them of helping Iran develop its missile program. And in the 1990s, China Poly uh, a China Poly agent in California was caught smuggling 2,000 AK-47s into the United States. While that national security probe was underway, one of the China Poly princelings visited the White House and got implicated in the so-called Chinagate fundraising scandal. Macau casino barons and triad associates circled around that political influence case. Some of them were familiar names from my research of Lai Chanxing's networks. I found that the Macau Barons and China Poly were like hand in glove. Case in point, Stanley Ho spent millions at auction to hand China Poly an object of tremendous propaganda value. And this bronze pig head was displayed at Polyculture's November 2016 art gallery opening in Vancouver. Our Vancouver Sun story set the scene like this. Under the watchful eye of Vancouver police in tactical gear, attendees admired four rare bronze zodiac heads, a tiger, a monkey, an ox, and pig that had once adorned the summer palace in Beijing. It was the first time the cultural relics looted the following, following the palace's destruction by British and French forces in 1860 had been displayed outside China since the repatriation. The opening of a gallery and North American headquarters here by Polyculture was the culmination of intense behind-the-scenes courting by local politicians, especially liberal MLA Teresa Watt, then BC's international trade minister, and was hailed in government documents as a major economic win and significant day for British Columbia and its relationship with China. So I could see the shadowy outlines of state actor activity that my sources were talking about. And my instinct was China chose to display the looted relics in Vancouver for propaganda value. It was like Xi's regime was planting a flag in the West. In China, the Zodiac heads represent the burning national humiliation of defeat in the Opium Wars. 
But now, BC politicians were quietly rolling out the red carpet for Xi's Belt and Road. Something else that was hard to believe at first was the connection between China and Mexico that my sources talked about. But I eventually found it was no stretch at all. Chinese actors, in fact, were merging with the Sinaloa cartels in North America. And some extremely credible Canadian security intel sources blew my mind with this assessment. The Chinese state seemed to have influence with the Mexican cartels. They had to, one RCMP source told me, because the Chinese underground bankers were handling almost all of the Latin American narcos money. It was trade-based money laundering on an industrial scale. Chinese merchants moved the Mexican cartel money worldwide by converting drug cash into factory goods. Merchants shipped the goods wherever the cartels needed their funds. The goods were sold. The proceeds banked. Politicians were bribed. Weapons were purchased. And more drugs were produced and exported. At the same time, Chinese state-controlled factories were shipping mountains of fentanyl precursors into Mexican ports. As always, it was a textbook case that enabled me to grasp the relationships. I studied U.S. government records on the so-called Chinese-Mexican whale, Zenli Yi Gon. The Shanghai Board Pharmaceutical Tycoon, a Chinese national and Mexican citizen, was busted in his Mexico City hacienda in 2007. According to U.S. court records, in a secret room off Yi's master bedroom, police found a stash of military weapons and a two-ton pile of cash worth $207 million U.S. Stop for a minute and visualize that. This was a large room with U.S. dollars, Hong Kong dollars, pesos, euros, and Canadian dollars neatly stacked halfway to the ceiling. It was the unlaundered proceeds of Yi's crystal meth business. And he looked like a very connected figure in China. Educated at East China University of Political Science and Law, and a school administered by Beijing's Ministry of Justice. This was a decade before massive shipments of fentanyl precursors started to land in Vancouver and Manzanillo. But in the early 2000s, Yi was the largest chemical supplier for the Sinaloa cartel, importing at least 50 tons of meth precursors annually from a Chinese pharmaceutical company. His case had the markers of the Vancouver model written all over it. He was using Mexican currency exchanges to transfer hundreds of thousands of cash per week into HSBC bank accounts. He was wiring the money into Nevada. In just three years, he gambled at least $125 million in, Levada, in Las Vegas, U.S. court records say, betting $150,000 per hand at Baccarat. And Yi was on good terms with the Venetian Sands, operated by Venetian Macau owner Sheldon Adelson. That casino comped him a Rolls Royce, according to the Wall Street Journal. Yi fled to the United States, where he was arrested and eventually extradited back to Mexico. He denied all charges, but Mexico auctioned off his drug mansion in 2019. Yi continues to insist he imported chemicals from China for legitimate purposes, Legitimate business. But he also claimed he was operating under corrupt politicians in Mexico who asked him to fund Mexican election campaigns with his cash proceeds. 
Yi's allegation was vehemently denied by Mexican officials, but the claim made sense to plenty of Mexican citizens. Some reportedly even had license plates written in, Up, I believe the Chinaman. Cases like this, plots that a Hollywood screenwriter couldn't have imagined, showed me that my sources were not out on a limb. They were ahead of the curve. Meanwhile, I learned the U.S. government had started to pay attention to my reports about China's growing real estate footprint in Vancouver. And I was informed that some in the United States U.S. State Department worried that Chinese transnational crime was establishing a North American beachhead in Vancouver. But the RCMP and CSIS appeared to be overmatched. Canada had no real counterpunch to answer China's sophisticated financial activities in Vancouver. And so, there was a growing FBI and DEA presence in British Columbia. To me, it seemed like Canada's sovereignty on the West Coast was gradually eroding at least a little bit. And you could see the concern with Xi Jinping's so-called Belt and Road projects, the type of Chinese infrastructure investment deals warmly accepted by tin-pot dictators in underdeveloped nations. I knew these deals were being pitched to BC Liberal Premier Christy Clark and her government in 2016 when Clark and Watt met with Chinese Communist Party officials and real estate tycoons in Guangdong and Hong Kong. And BC's government eventually greenlit a $190 million Belt and Road Import-Export Center in 2018, the first of its kind in North America. This despite the fact that U.S. State Department believes Belt and Road projects are a major vector for Chinese espionage and trade-based money laundering, according to my Canadian intelligence sources. In response to questions for this book, Clark, now an advisor with international business law firm Bennett Jones, wrote, Increasing trade ties with China had been in a priority for Canada, for Canada for many years, including the groundbreaking Team Canada mission led by Prime Minister Trey Tien in 1994. Premier Mike Harcourt was part of that mission, and every BC Premier since has continued to visit China and work to strengthen our business relationships there. So the geopolitical implications of the Vancouver model were starting to really make sense. But I still had a mental block accepting that Chinese organized crime and the Chinese Communist Party were on the same team in Vancouver. My personal, this cannot be really happening in Canada, but indisputable evidence says it's, it is moment, came in late 2017. This was after I started to break e-pirate stories. Sources I had never heard from started to contact me. One source told me I should look at a compound east of Vancouver and near the U.S. border that was filled with stunning wealth. They said that the River Rock Casino Whale owned this hacienda in Chilliwack appeared to be involved in unimaginable money laundering. In a vast underground bunker, the whale had dozens of high-end luxury and military vehicles stacked on hoists. There were red Ferraris, black Rolls Royces, white Mercedes, green military Jeeps. It was a parking lot of horsepower that would have made El Chapo blush. But what really shocked me was the photos of the River Rock Whale's industrial collection. There was a red and gold fire truck, a big rig truck, and, a vin and vintage rocket launchers and ground mount machine guns. 
A different source with knowledge of RCMP weapons trafficking investigations corroborated the first source's information. RCMP weapons databases showed the whale owned the largest personal cache of weapons in Western Canada, a source said. Dogs and drones patrolled the compound, and the whale was almost always accompanied by two young Chinese men who carried weapons, the source said, inset an integrated Canadian National Security Unit, including RCMP and CSIS officers, was watching this compound with interest. And I confirmed that RCMP headquarters in Ottawa was aware of this Chinese national who had arrived in Vancouver February 15th of 2008 and proceeded to amass extravagant assets in Canada. His passport was from Hong Kong and his claimed source of income was a restaurant in China. But my intelligence sources said he owned aluminum mines in China. And you don't own mines in China without immaculate Guangxi in Beijing. So when I ran the whale's personal information through my confidential Lottery Corp anti-money laundering record database, a shocking profile emerged. This People's Liberation Army veteran allegedly cashed in from $200,000 to $300,000 per night at River Rock Casino. He was Paul King Jin's superior, according to my RCMP source. One of his utility vehicles was a camo Humvee, complete with vanity plates that said Tiger. I was informed the impressive man, tall, square-jawed, and handsome, was called the general by his followers in Vancouver. And indeed, WeChat videos showed that when Ron Xiang, Tiger Yuan, relaxed his compound's karaoke lounge to drink fine liquids and sing odes to the motherland, he wore his military fatigues. Despite my efforts to question Tiger Yuan about his many documented ties to Paul King Jin, I've never been able to reach him directly. So I can't ask him why RCMP investigators refer to him as Suspect 2 in the confidential documents that name many alleged River Rock VIP gamblers and loan sharks, including Paul King Jin, who is identified as Suspect 22. Through his lawyers, Yuan denied any involvement in criminality, and he sued for defamation after my reports in Global News outlined what my sources in RCMP and BC Lottery Corp investigation records say about him. Yuan says he is a successful businessman who has been an active member of the Chinese-Canadian community for many years, and he meets many individuals. What I discovered in my own investigations, collecting and assessing photographs and witness accounts, is that Tiger Juan is evidently so respected in Beijing that he can share a stadium box seat with China's Consul General at state-sponsored events in Vancouver, break bread with Chinese pop stars and Mandarin-language journalists in Vancouver, and even rub shoulders with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at so-called cash-for-access fundraisers. This information seemed ridiculously outside the curve of anything in Canadian history. When you see an elite People's Liberation Army veteran allegedly involved in massive BC casino money laundering and dealing with the most violent of mainland China narcos and loan sharks in Canada, and be very active in Beijing's political influence operations in Vancouver, to me, it suggests problems worth investigating. 
I knew the RCMP and CSIS were watching the general NPC, but across the country in Ottawa, leaders seemed completely oblivious, and I had information that screamed for national attention. Sources told me that an Iranian national named Kusha was the meat shield for Tiger. Canadian de deportation records showed that this tattooed bodybuilder had a criminal record. In one case, Kusha was convicted for threatening to kill a Vancouver police officer. He had racially abused the officer and his family and announced that he hated Jews so much that he smiled at their pain knowing that he could cause fear. Ooh. So a confidential RCMP link chart indicated Kusha was an employee of Kenny, the young Chinese man who shadowed Tiger in public and stored restricted weapons in Tiger's compound. And photographs, photographs from inside Tiger's compound showed Kusha posing with his finger on the trigger of a German MP40 submachine gun. So why was Rong Jiang Yuan surrounded by gun-toting thugs, but also tight with Chinese consular leaders? I had to understand what this conversion of, of state actors and organized crime suspects meant for Canada's security. So I consulted international experts like John Manthorpe, Alex Josky, and Clive Hamilton in Australia and Professor Anne-Marie Brady in New Zealand to understand President Xi Jinping's so-called magic weapon of espionage and political interference, the United Front Work Department. By 2020, I had seen enough to eradicate my doubts. My sources were correct, and Canadians had to be informed. Dot, dot, dot. I started to hear about problems with the e-pirate case in late 2018. This was the most significant money laundering case in Canadian history. Federal charges were laid in September of 2017, and the case was scheduled to go to trial in January of 2019. As I had reported for the Vancouver Sun, when the RCMP raided Silver's office in downtown Richmond and Jin's Richmond Hacienda and luxury condo, they seized 132 computers and cell phones capturing 30 terabytes of data. If all the files, if all the digital files were printed on paper, it would have filled 3 million telephone books. There was a huge forensic accounting element to the case with transactions traced to 600 bank accounts in China. Evidence was mostly in Mandarin, so the RCMP needed a team of translators working with a small team of federal prosecutors in Ottawa. The file just seemed to drag and drag. It was, a in, it was a character in Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, who described how spectacular busts usually are preceded by myriad paper cuts. The character is asked, how did you go bankrupt? Two ways, gradually, then suddenly. And that's how the e-pirate imploded. In late November of 2018, the week before Global News ran five stories on our Fentanyl Making a Killing series, I went to a government source and asked for an update on the charges. They said that there was a problem with the case. The RCMP and prosecutors had mistakenly exposed a police informant. Some believe the source's life was at risk. Excuse me. This could go either way, the source said. 
And on November 28th, two days after Global News published our story, secret police study finds crime networks could have laundered over $1 billion through Vancouver homes in 2016. The RCMP dropped its own bombshell. E-pirate charges were stayed for several reasons that materialized during the course of the file, the nature of which will not be discussed, the statement said. But in BC, there was incredible public interest to understand how this crucial crucial case had failed. In December 2018, a CBC reporter obtained court files pointing to an evidence disclosure error. And in January of 2019, I confirmed what I had been informed of months before, a massive RCMP investigation of alleged underground bankers in Richmond, BC, estimated to be laundering over $1 billion per year, collapsed in November because federal prosecutors mistakenly exposed the identity of a police informant who they fear could have been killed if the case proceeded, Global News has learned. The big problem was Ottawa simply didn't provide the resources to prosecute such an incredible volume of evidence, a source told me. Just translating ePirate's Mandarin language evidence was more than staff could handle. And underlying the spectacular mistake of exposing an informant to the defense lawyer for Paul King Jin is a structural problem. Canada's evidence disclosure requirements are heavily weighted in favor of well-capitalized transnational criminals. Beyond that, it's obvious that Canada desperately lacks innovative racketeering laws It took new legal tools from the FBI to break the mafia's economic grip on New York City decades ago. But regardless of these systemic legal problems, some officers believe that there were more insidious reasons for e-pirates failing. They were thinking back to what had happened in October of 2015, when an RCMP tactical unit stormed into an illegal casino in Richmond farmland, Hacienda. They had found the operation completely abandoned, Ominously, their original search warrant date was circled on a wall calendar. Senior police in BC worried their operational plans were compromised. I only discovered this crucial detail because I obtained Ross Alderson's raw investigative notes. The notes said an experienced GPEB officer on the raid was convinced that the RCMP had a serious leak. Someone was giving RCMP plans to well-connected big circle boys. There was also chatter in policing circles that e-pirate raid had been openly discussed by senior officials in Victoria. There could be deeper political problems for e-pirate in Ottawa and Victoria. Can't say definitively, but some sources think so, and there are more questions than answers. But e-pirate's failure weakened the NDP government resistance to a money laundering inquiry. About 80% of BC residents wanted an inquiry in late 2018, according to polls. And our reporting at Global News had shown systemic vulnerability in Canada's justice system. Police knew who the money launderers and narcos responsible for Vancouver's fentanyl overdose and housing affordability disaster were. But the criminals couldn't be stopped. My colleagues, sorry, my colleague, Jesse Ferreras reported in early 2019 for Global News, after the collapse of ePirate, Premier Horgan said the rule of law had failed in BC. And in May of 2019, Horgan announced the Cullen Commission inquiry 
naming BC Supreme Court Justice Austin F. Cullen as the commissioner. For everyone at Global News who worked the BC money laundering file, especially my colleague John Waugh, who worked on many TV pieces with me, this was rewarding. Our reporting was credited for accomplishing the highest objectives of investigative journalism in the face of backlash from powerful financial interest. But I also knew that a national money laundering inquiry was needed. Reporting from Ottawa, I was finding the Vancouver model was a Canada-wide problem. Transnational drug cartels running beneath banking supernodes in China and the Middle East were deeply intertwined with real estate and trade in Toronto and Montreal, as well as Vancouver. And it was a sprawling DEA investigation that ultimately helped me understand how corruption was enabling organized crime to advance across Canada. I first learned of the Five Eyes probe of Altaf Kahani and Farsam Medizadeh, thank you, in October of 2017, I was waiting to speak to financial professionals about my e-pirate reporting at a conference in Toronto. Before I was up, Scott Doran, a senior RCMP officer, was delivering his keynote speech on challenges policing big Canadian banks for money laundering. I was only half awake after tossing and turning all night in my hotel room. A lawyer for Great Canadian Gaming had emailed warning me not to deliver my speech. I ignored the baseless libel threat. Canadian bankers wanted to hear me talk about a serious threat to, na- to the nation, and, but I have to admit I was a bit distracted. That was until Doran flicked up a slide showing the mugshots of Ka- Kanani, a Pakistani national, and Farsam Medisadeh, a 57-year-old Toronto ex- currency exchange owner. And when Duran said that the men were Five Eyes targets, I scrambled to turn on my tape recorder. This meant the powerful Western Intelligence Alliance viewed these men as serious national security threats. Doran explained that RCMP units had detailed Mehizadeh driving from Toronto to Montreal and back 81 times in a single year. The RCMP had been watching Mehizadeh since at least 2015, Montreal is still superficially dominated by Italian mafia, but the Middle Eastern and Chinese underground bankers increasingly handle the drug money in Montreal, a vital port for narco routes up and down the eastern seaboard. Mehizadeh was making about eight trips per month to Laval, where Lebanese drug traffickers warehouse their cash. Every trip, Mehizadeh would gather about 1.2 million cash, stuff it into his trunk, and return to a network of Persian diaspora currency shops clustered in the Steeles Avenue and Yong Street region of northern Toronto. Bricks of cash and elastic bands would be vaulted in back rooms of currencies and shops. Massive secret pools of capital in Canada to balance against incalculable sums. Bah, sums waiting to be transferred underground out of Iran and Dubai. Banking sanctions levied against Iran in 2010 had only increased the flow in these underground finance networks. A source that ran a Toronto currency shop told me, he said that there were only about five Iranian money exchanges in Toronto in 2009, and in 2020 there were over 70. 
It was an operation very similar to the Richmond Cash Houses run by the Big Circle Boys. On March 9, 2016, the RCMP got a warrant to make Mehizadeh down for international money laundering. At 10.25 p.m. on April 17th, he was speeding back from Montreal on Highway 401 when Ontario Provincial Police pulled him over in Kinta County near the Sandbags Provincial Park on Lake Ontario. He didn't seem very surprised. He voluntarily disclosed he has a large sum of money in his possession in the amount of $1.3 million. An RCMP investigation affidavit says, and police found bundles of cash beside the gas pedal. They popped the trunk and found a black hockey bag stuffed with bricks, 50 bricks of cash, a blue backpack with 21 bricks of cash, and a leather travel bag holding 37 bricks of cash. A few days later, police searched Mahizadeh's North York mansion and his Yong Street currency exchange. They seized numerous banking and ledger documents that showed a spider's web of wire transfers, bank drafts, and substantial loans and transactions with major Canadian banks and numerous Toronto financial businesses. He faced 16 criminal charges. The RCMP said Mahizadeh had laundered $100 million in Toronto and Montreal in just one year. But there was so much more to the case. I found the RCMP only knew about Mahizadeh because of his brilliant work from the DEA and Australian Federal Police. RCMP's intelligence directors were briefed in October of 2014 at the DEA's secret headquarters in Chantilly, Virginia. There were dozens of investigators and analysts from the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Since 2008, DEA had been running undercover agents into Hezbollah, narco-launderers' cells in Medellin, Dubai, Panama City. Agents discovered a web of businessmen, just like Mahizadeh, collecting drug cash from Iranian state-sponsored criminals in cities worldwide, Toronto, Vancouver, New York, Los Angeles, Sydney, Paris, Melbourne, Miami, London. The DEA broke the case by infiltrating the top of the pyramid. They said Altaf Kanani was the mastermind who washed $16 billion per year for Latin American cartels, Chinese triads, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Indian narco-terrorist Dawood Ibrahim, and Hezbollah. It was Kanani's ties to Iran and Hezbollah that worried DEA the most. Police called him the Goldman Sachs of underground banking. Not an exaggeration, considering Kanani's network reportedly handled 40% of Pakistan's foreign currency exchange. So DEA and undercovers start chipping away at Kanani's Hawala network. They posed as cartel bosses and worked their way up, gaining confidence step by step. Kanani was like a hidden god of the underworld, pushing beads back and forth on a giant abacus. It was all about balancing credits and debt debits in secret cash houses worldwide. If the Sinaloa cartel wanted to collect $1 million in cash from a cocaine sale in Montreal, they would call Kanani. Kanani would send his Toronto currency trader to pick it up. And then Kanani would have a currency trader in Mexico pay the funds out in pesos to the Sinaloa cartel. Minus a 3% fee. No money ever crossed borders. At some later date, the Sinaloa cartel would need funds transferred to, a Toron- to Toronto, maybe to buy weapons 
or pay off border guards. So Kanani would get them to deposit pesos with his Mexican currency trader. At this time, his Toronto currency agent would pay $1 million cash out to a Mexican cartel agent in northern York, minus a 3% fee. An abacus bead slid from Mexico to Canada on a giant scale. It got a lot more complex when Kanani's network mixed wire transfers from Dubai and global textile trading into the mix. But in simple terms, this was how Kanani used the ancient mercantilist art of Hawala to move drugs and weapons across six continents. The DEA prided itself on nonlinear thinking. It was more like a military understanding of supply chain logistics than police running around chasing dial-a-dopers. If you wanted to save lives taken by bombs and guns and opioid overdoses, you had to stop the ships carrying the drugs and weapons. And to do that, you had to stop the kingpin money launderers financing the trade. So the plan was to take Kanani down by tricking him into moving fake drug cash in five eyes cities. And Australian taxpayers fronted over $1 million to seed undercover operations. We were working Kanani around the world using Australia's money, a U.S. official told me. We told Kanani, we have a certain amount of drug money in Toronto. Do you have someone to pick it up? And they would give us a contact number. The U.S. source said DEA agents discovered cash laundering contracts in Australia were interconnected with drug transactions in Canada. A cash pickup in Melbourne would send a shipment, yeah, sh- sorry, a shipment of cocaine from Vancouver to Toronto. And the investigation proved how Five Eyes partners could disrupt major traffickers by taking out their financial masterminds. But the Kanani investigation also revealed something very wrong was happening up high in the RCMP. In retrospect, it seemed to go back up to about 2008. My source said a, a team of DEA agents had traveled to Ottawa to meet RCMP brass. The DEA had dirty calls, wiretaps directing cocaine shipments and cash movements in Canada from narco bosses in Colombia to Hezbollah and agents in Halifax, Vancouver, and Calgary. The DEA handed the RCMP key targets and solid evidence, but the RCMP didn't want to wiretap the narcotics terror suspects. They wouldn't go up on any phones. We were dumbfounded, a U.S. source told me in 2019. It really bothered me. It was very clear how Canada was a very, very big part of Hezbollah's transnational narco-terrorism. But RCMP made it very clear at that time they didn't want to bear down on money laundering and drug trafficking. So when I see what is happening now in Vancouver... I have to think back to what we were seeing. Just a moment. So it seemed there was a strange reticence in the RCMP to target Iranian state-sponsored crime. Multiple sources confirmed this for me. Ottawa did finally sign onto the sting of Altaf Kanani and Farsam Mahizadeh. You can bet a Five Eyes partner and a decline to investigate a super criminal believed to be wandering $16 billion annually for the world's biggest 
worst terrorist in narcos. But it was a hard sell for the U.S. government. We really had to push them to drop that cash in Toronto, a U.S. source told me. And ultimately, it blew up. My colleague Stuart Bell worked the Kanani case with me. And he was informed that Mehizadeh returned to Iran sometime after he was released on bail in 2016. The RCMP refused to tell me why. So let's review the record. In Toronto, a key target in a crucial Five Eyes money laundering investigation just vanishes before trial. And in Vancouver, an even bigger transnational money laundering case fails weeks before trial. Dot, dot, dot. In September of 2019, when CSIS agents scoured the Ottawa condo of Cameron Ortis, a civilian RCMP intelligence official, they found dozens of encrypted computers. They also found evidence that Ortis was planning to leak Five Eyes operations plans to Altaf Kanani's network. So when the RCMP finally announced charges against Ortis, for some officers, there was a burst of relief and then fury. They called Ortis the golden boy, or the prince, as in Machiavelli. They felt he had been coddled by RCMP Brass, the old boys club. And in retrospect, for some who worked with Ortis, the RCMP's strange refusal to investigate Hezbollah, narco targets, finally made sense. Ortis had the charisma of a cool professor with his tortoiseshell glasses. He looked like a a bit of a Jeremy Irons, but shorter and more muscular. In 2007, the RCMP had recruited him straight out of University of BC grad school. He rocketed up to, to lead a secretive intelligence unit called Operational Results or Operations Research, OR, depending on who you asked. OR was staffed with about 10 civilian analysts, just like Ortis, and they pushed the envelope of Canada's justice system by using high-side intel shared among the Five Eyes. This was classified information collected from sensitive human sources and intercepted signals. The dangerously exposed human sources could include undercover agents inside Hezbollah or even politically connected tycoons in mainland China. This Five Eyes intel could rarely be used in Canadian criminal prosecutions, but RCMP commander Bob Paulsons believed that Ortis and his cadre of brilliant academics in OR were skillfully, sorry, skillfully leveraging high side intel to boost the RCMP to the FBI's level. And in 2016, Paulson and his deputies promoted Ortis, making him director general of RCMP's National Intelligence Center. He was the first civilian ever to become RCMP's gatekeeper for Canada's crown jewel secrets. Due to Canadian court publication bans, there is some information I can't report. But because of my early knowledge of the Altaf Kanani Five Eyes case, I learned a great deal from Canadian and U.S. sources outside of the courts. And that information I can report because it is crucial for Canadians to know how much damage one powerful intelligence analyst could have done. In the broadest strokes, federal prosecutors' unproven charges allege Ortis had been sharing RCMP's plans with foreign entities or terrorist organizations since 2015 at least. Investigators have only started to understand the massive volume of top-secret data that Ortis allegedly stole and encrypted. 
It includes information that could endanger Canada's national security and sovereignty. It's not clear from existing allegations whether Ortis was just dealing with state-sponsored gangsters and global money launderers or whether he was working for hostile states. But the information I obtained shows Ortis was allegedly offering to sell the RCMP's tactical plans to currency traders used by Kanani in Toronto. Ortis is charged for contacting Mehizadeh in 2015 and offering a special operations plan for a fee while the RCMP was trailing Mahizadeh driving to Montreal and back to Toronto. And Ortis is charged with for twice contacting Mahizadeh's business associate, Salim Hanara. Hanara is a currency trader involved in major commercial real estate investments in Toronto. Think about that. Hanani is allegedly a major terror financier, part of a network that literally moves guns and drugs and bombs all over the world. And the RCMP is supposed to be protecting Canadians from the harms of money laundering. But according to the charges, Ortis, possibly the most influential brain in the RCMP, was offering protection to money launderers. An RCMP source told me the Toronto currency traders used by Kanani were intertwined in significant real estate development. On top of that, donation records show that he was active in Liberal, liberal Party cash for access fundraisers and philanthropy. He is also an influential community leader of the Iranian-Canadian Congress, according to internal records I obtained. A lawyer for Hanare sent this to Optimum on the eve of publishing the book. A. Mr. Hanara has no connection whatsoever to Mr. Kanani or his business dealings whatsoever, illegal or otherwise. B. Mr. Han Mr. Hanara is not a business partner of Mr. Mehizadeh. On a few occasions in 2010 and 2011, Mr. Mehizadeh was a customer of one of Mr. Hanara's currency exchange businesses, like thousands of others, all transactions processed on behalf of Mr. Mahizadeh were reported to FinTrack in the ordinary course and required by law. Well after these transactions in the normal course, Mr. Hinara's businesses were subject to a thorough FinTrack audit, which covered the periods of 2010 and 2011 and disclosed not a single irregularity. See, Mr. Hinara is not accused of any wrongdoing whatsoever in relation to Mr. Ortiz, Mr. Hanara has never purchased any information or anything else from Mr. Ortiz. Mr. Hanara has cooperated fully with the RCMPs in relation to Mr. Ortiz's offer to sell information to him. So that's that's my t my lawyer tone. Sorry. And in March 21. 2021, the FBI unsealed a criminal complaint against Hanara, alleging that he and a number of currency traders were in part of an international scheme to make transactions secretly executed on behalf of Iran. During the scheme, the defendants allegedly created and used more than 70 front companies, money service businesses, and exchange houses in the United States, Iran, Canada, the United Arab Emirates, and Hong Kong. The complaint filed in October 2020 in Los Angeles said, The defendants also allegedly made false representations to financial institutions to disguise 
more than 300 million worth of transactions on Iran's behalf. Financial institutions to disguise more than 300 million worth of transactions on Iran's behalf. In one of the alleged transactions, the FBI said while Hinara was running a Toronto currency exchange in 2012, he used a Hong Kong-based front company to secretly buy two U.S. $25 million oil tankers on behalf of Iran. Mr. Hinara's lawyer responded that, with respect to the unsealed criminal complaint in the United States naming Mr. Hinara, Mr. Hanara has never been contacted by any U.S. or Canadian authority concerning the matters raised in this complaint. Mr. Hanara denies all allegations contained in the complaint. A U.S. source with knowledge of the Five Eyes Kanani probe told me that damage in the Ortiz case is incalculable. The most damning point of this case is that it creates distrust in the whole foundation of international intelligence sharing for fighting terror and crime, he said. The fact that Ortis was trying to share Canadian intelligence with Kanani says it all. You have billions of dollars of money laundering tied to terrorist organizations that have killed hundreds of thousands of people. People should be saying, this is unbelievable. We can never let this happen again. It's not clear what possible motive drove Ortis besides greed. How deep and dark could this be? What could have been compromised and to who? Ortis National Intelligence Unit was producing reports on cocaine coming from Latin America, transnational gangs based in Macau and China, and weapons trafficking worldwide. Sources said Ortiz was a leader on complex investigations focused on China and Iran early in his career. Lots of evidence suggests Ortiz was drawn to global money launderers and cyber criminals. But to my mind, exactly who Ortiz was working for is a moot point. The cyber world that he had mastered is where criminals and spies and state actors converge trade secrets. And I found it incredibly illuminating that Ortiz's 2006 UBC graduate thesis explored national security vulnerabilities caused by compromised nodes in the digital black market that connects gangsters, and hackers in Hong Kong and Shenzhen, China. Lines like this one jumped off the page. It's transnational organized crime. Is transnational organized crime a threat to state security in the digital age, Ortis wrote. This chapter introduces that concept of a nexus between two previously distinct hidden networks, systems intruders, and transnational organized crime. Ironically, Ortis looks like a compromised node himself, but when did he lose his way? I know that investigators have looked all the way back to his studies at UBC, and to me, his graduate research in, research in Asia seems a good place to start. Ortis speaks Mandarin. He was introduced to state sources in mainland China through his academic research at UBC, the thesis said. Uh, and his academic network at the university frequently displays pro-Beijing message. For example, in 2020, the Globe and Mail reported that UBC professor Paul Evans is seen by Huawei Canada as one of the key opinion leaders that could help prevent Chinese telecom giant from being banned from Canada 5G networks. And I found that Evans was Ortiz's mentor 
for the Compromise Nodes thesis, which they jointly published. Evans told me that Ortiz had worked with experts in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China. It was a complex and strikingly original thesis that went far beyond the normal bounds of political science and involved conversations with dozens of people in the, in the broad fields of international relations, Evans told me. Beyond that, I have nothing more to say in a situation where his case is before the courts. Ultimately, Ortiz's expertise on Chinese transnational crime and cyber criminals propelled him to the pinnacle of Canadian intelligence, despite his having no operational experience. And here is something that my sources found very strange. One of the U.S. State Department's top national security concerns is Chilopsi, the Canadian big circle boy who may have become the world's top narco before Australian federal police nailed him in the Netherlands. C was preparing to fly to Toronto. Australian police apparently felt more confident asking the Dutch to extradite C than Canada. Even though Chilopsi left Canada after 2010, his network in Toronto is very strong. Four of Sam Gore's commanders are Canadian citizens. That fact alone shows how important Canada has become for Chinese transnational gangs. And C's associates in Markham appear to have a relationship with some staff working in Canadian banks, several RCMP sources informed me. The, the allegation made sense because e-pirate surveillance records showed me that Jin and his associates were observed dealing with various bank staff in Richmond. And an extremely knowledgeable financial crimes investigator told me organized crime almost always cultivates banking staff to obtain instruments such as bank drafts to complete useful transactions. So around 2014, the RCMP was informed by Australian Federal Police that C and the company were running a global crystal meth import and export hub in Markham, right under the nose of Canadian police forces. This was embarrassing for Ottawa, to say the least. And the units that Ortis influenced started the surveillance on Chilopsi's deputies in Markham and produced intelligence reports for the Five Eyes. Here is an interesting aside. I'm told undercovers who set up at a location in Markham were very surprised to see a senior Canadian elected official in the vicinity of Chilopsi's group meeting. But that undercover observation didn't lead to any deeper investigation. And here's another mind bender. Some Canadian and Australian federal police got together in 2015 they concluded that Chilopsi's Toronto network and Paul Jin's Richmond network were, of course, working together. This all made perfect sense. Chilopsi and Kwok Chung Tam were our old comrades. And think back to Pat Fogarty's stunning wiretap investigations in Vancouver. In the late 1990s, Fogarty was listening to triad commanders calling shots in Macau's bloody war for control of Stanley Ho's baccarat tables. The Big Circle Boys and the 14K banded together against the water room triad. But these drug cartels were ultimately controlled by Chinese state bosses who put an end to the triad conflicts. Many of these Chinese loan sharks and high rollers identified in Australian intelligence were also identified in Canadian criminal intelligence. Paul Jin recruited his whales in Macau and Chi Lapsi bragged of controlling Macau. Kwok Chung Tam was one of Jin's bosses. 
So it didn't take a rocket scientist to surmise connectivity between CHILAP-C's operation in eastern Canada and Paul Jane King Jin's network in West Coast. But when Ortiz took over the RCMP's National Intelligence Center in 2016, suddenly his team had a very different opinion than experts in Australian and Canadian anti-gang units. Ortiz wasn't interested in Chilopsi's connection to ePirate and the RCMP's nascent probe of Sam Gore and Markham fizzled out. Another crazy occurrence. Abruptly in 2016, RCMP intelligence gathering priorities changed. Chinese transnational crime was downgraded as a priority. There are some in the RCMP who wonder if Ortiz was influenced or had influenced these strange decisions. And it's not baseless speculation. There is solid evidence, according to a source, suggesting Ortiz blocked a potential RCMP investigation of EncroChat, an encryptions technology business with links to Vancouver that service transnational narcos in the United Kingdom and across Europe especially. And that's just one organized crime-focused file. Here is a truly scary aspect of the Ortiz case. Sources with knowledge of a national security investigation told me Ortiz quickly became RCMP Commander Bob Paulson's most trusted advisor on national security and sensitive political investigations. Ortiz and Paulson were so close, sources said, that Paulson treated Ortiz almost like an oracle. One source described the influence as Rasputin-like. There is a story that seems to highlight the relationship. The claim is that Paulson insisted on bringing Ortiz into what was supposed to be a one-on-one meeting in Washington. The alleged meeting prior to 2014 was with the FBI director, Robert Mueller. The FBI would not comment. Paulson would also not comment on my source information for this book. Previously, he acknowledged he was close to Ortiz, but he insisted he was never aware of red flags or internal complaints about Ortiz before Paulson retired in 2017. But if Ortiz had such influence on Paulson's strategic and tactical priorities, the intangible damage to Canada will be difficult to assess. A U.S. source familiar with RCMP's decision-making from 2008 to 2016 said in hindsight, the Ortiz case isn't a complete shock. There was a lingering feeling. Is there an obstruction at the top of Ottawa, he said? Overall, operationally, we kind of felt like there was something in Canada, like our ops were vulnerable to something like this. So it's really interesting how intelligence analysts like Ortis develop so much power to decide who gets targeted and who doesn't. And it ends up becoming a political thing. As one Canadian policing executive said, it's terrifying that Ortis had more access to national security secrets than anyone else in the RCMP. It's even more terrifying that he could have enabled hostile state actors to operate in Canada or leaked high-side intel to their political masters in China, Russia, or Iran. And even outside his, ele- his alleged Rasputin-like hold on Paulson, Ortiz had enough power himself. Numerous data points from documents and sources say that Ortiz was protected from oversight as complaints about, complaints about his leadership mounted. 
So could foreign entities be looking for more than information from someone like Ortis? Could they misdirect Canada's intelligence apparatus? Could they misdirect Canada's intelligence apparatus by having an agent influence at the controls? Good question. I know some leaders in the RCMP are asking. Come on. Oh, asking these questions because the damage to units that Ortis controlled appears to be deep and lasting. In September of 2019, when the RCMP announced that the Ortiz arrest, our global news team started looking for potential damage. And Global News Ottawa Bureau, Chief Mercedes Stevenson, got a huge tip. She pinged me on a secure messaging app and asked me if the name Vincent Ramos meant anything to me. I knew the name well. In 2018, Ramos and his Richmond encryption technology company, Phantom Secure, was taken down by the FBI. Phantom Secure had sold up to 20,000 untraceable smartphones to elite narcos worldwide, including bosses of the Sinaloa cartel, enabling them to evade wiretaps and command drug imports, money laundering, and murders. An Ortis unit was working Phantom Secure with the FBI and many international forces. Mercedes Stevenson's tip was that Ortis had contacted Ramos and told him Phantom Secure was under investigation and offered to sell police intelligence. I later learned that I later learned the opening to offer to Ramos was allegedly twenty thousand. But Ortiz wasn't as street smart as he appeared to be in the academic world. When the FBI eventually caught Ramos, they flipped him. And Ramos had a lot to lose. He had already admitted to undercover DEA agents that his smartphones could be used to geolocate informants. So he gave up Ortis and took an FBI deal. Selling phones to narcos was quite lucrative. But Ramos had to turn over $80 million of his proceeds to the U.S. government. Ramos admitted that he and his co-conspirators facilitated the distribution of cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamines to locations around the world including the United States, Australia, Mexico, Canada, Thailand, and Europe by supplying narcotics traffickers with phantom secure encrypted communications devices designed to thwart law enforcement, a U.S. Department of Justice statement says. Stevenson, Stuart Bell, and I worked together to confirm the connection between Ortiz and Ramos, and we broke the story. In the packing order on transnational crime, Ramos is a non-entity compared to names like Altif Kanani. But the impact Ortiz had on the Phantom Secure case is still enormous. The Five Eyes probe into Ramos had to be rolled up early, and Canada's partners missed opportunities to sting Phantom's most powerful clients, the ones and twos of transnational drug cartels. Australia and the United States were pissed, a source told me. And the same thing allegedly happened with EncroChat. I was informed that European gangsters were using the service plan to for executions and orders block Canada's investigations, potentially protecting EncroChat's boss, a man with BC roots. I have repeatedly asked Ortiz to respond to my questions, but his lawyer has never answered. In early 2020, I called out to Ortiz in an Ottawa courtroom, but he turned away. Allegations against him haven't been proven at trial, 
and he doesn't want to answer my questions. The question of how many criminal nodes could be connected through high-tech operatives like Vincent Ramos and Cameron Ortis is wide open. I know some investigators are intrigued by the idea that the networks of Ramos and e-pirate targets in Richmond could have converged. After all, Silver International and Phantom Secure were located in the same Richmond office building. In a quote from the Phantom Secure CEO in 1993, Richmond High School yearbook only adds to the intrigue. Vince's most ex- memorable experience was cruising hardcore and going to Jen's house, text beside Ramos, grinning mugshot says. His future ambition is to make a lot of money. Dot, dot, dot. Brian Hill and I were in the federal court buildings on Spark Street. This was one of my favorite places to work, a three-minute walk from our global news bureau in Ottawa. Whenever I needed a break from reading files, I could step into the Cobblestone Street and look north to the Queen's Gate leading up to Canada's Parliament. This view helped me remember the aphorism that motivates investigative reporters. To comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. But this day, I didn't need any motivation. My hands were shaking with adrenaline. Piles of boxes surrounded us. It was our second day drilling into the Kwok Chung Tam immigration files. The first day is like taking core samples. You dig into a box and get a quick sense of the evidence and move on. Now I had a broad idea of the terrain. I was focused on RCMP intelligence files and Tam's own financial records. I was amazed at the intelligence from Ottawa and that never made it to public trials. I found records that said Kwok Chung Tam had been issued a fraudulent identity record from the Chinese consulate in Vancouver. Think about that. No one in Canada was informed that the Chinese government issued a fake ID to an, elect- to an alleged big circle boy kingpin. Why would they do that? But I was more interested in Tam's financial records. He was attempting to demonstrate that he was a legitimate businessman. There were all kinds of banking assets and real estate investments. When I hit the bare trust file, I stifled a shout. What? I understood how controversial bare trusts were in BC. These legal structures allow wealthy investors to remain completely anonymous on real estate transaction documents. BC Attorney General David Eby had already traveled to Parliament Hill in 2018 on an anti-money laundering mission. He told Finance uh, Finance Committee that anonymous investor, investors were flooding billions of dollars into BC real estate using bear trust r- loopholes. The government couldn't learn their identities because only the law firm that constructs the bear trust holds a piece of paper with investor names recorded. That all sounds a bit academic, but in my hands I had a bear trust file show, showing that Kwok Chung Tam, a notorious drug boss, had completed a Vancouver condo development in 2011 with co-investors, including his sister and another convicted drug trafficker. This file was a huge leap towards explaining how the Big Circle Boys were using lawyers to hide their real estate developments in Canada. But it was the name of the legal company on Tam's Bear Trust that really mattered to me because the principal was sitting in the House of Commons. It was Pesciolito and Company, the firm of liberal MP Joe Pesciolito, an important political fundraiser in Richmond for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's party. It was exactly the sort of evidence that the Cullen Commission mandated to examine on two fronts. 
were lawyers facilitating money laundering and was political corruption involved in the Vancouver model. In our June 2019 story, alleged gang kingpin may have used Liberal MP's law firm to launder money through BC condo deal. We explained that bear trusts are legal in the province. Still, the TAM deal raised all sorts of questions about the role of lawyers in BC's money laundering crisis. Pechalito's firm had enabled TAM's anonymous purchase of a 7.75 million land parcel in 2011, despite many public records gluing Kwok Tam to the big circle boys. Even worse, Pechalito and company completed the deal while Tam was serving a conditional sentence for a 2010 drug trafficking conviction. The Vancouver province had reported on that case and labeled Tam a drug boss. I interviewed Kim Marsh, an anti-money laundering expert and former RCMP organized crime unit commander. Anybody doing basic due diligence, even basic Google searches, would determine that there are huge red flags that these are individuals are involved with illicit activities, Marsh said. So anyone doing business with them is either doing nothing or it's a case of willful blindness. Pesholito, however, claimed he had nothing to do with the deal. While I was practicing at Pesholito and Associates, I never oversaw any bear trust deal real estate transactions, nor did I ever deal with Mr. Tam in any capacity, Pesholito wrote in the Global News. So when I did a system-wide scan of Canadian legal records, I found yet another Pesholito and company bear trust case. This 2011 deal included a mainland China construction magnate, YZ, who had just happened to be one of the 36 River Rock Casino VIPs connected to Paul King Jin's cash delivery network. Furthermore, YZ was a Julia Lau real estate client involved in BC real estate development. This made him a central player in the Vancouver model networks I was investigating. We had another scoop for Global News. Liberal MP involved in second bear trust deal with client named in transnational money laundering probe. Pesholito claimed again that an associate lawyer at his firm had total responsibility for the file but these stories were reverberating in Parliament. Conservative MP Peter Kent grilled Pesholito and Liberal Public Safety Minister Bill Blair on the allegations exposed by Global News and asked for a Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner investigation. The commissioner eventually found Pesholito violated two parts of the Conflict of Interest Code chronically failing to disclose private interest. And I was getting more information. A source with direct knowledge confirmed the RCMP had opened a file on the Pesholito, on Pesholito, because confidential police informants alleged the lawyer had been associating with Chinese organized crime figures through his Richmond practice. A source said that during e-pirate probe, which was started in 2015, the RCMP was hearing Pesholito was affiliated with and involved in structuring investment deals for some of his law firm's clients that he knew were associated to Asian organized crime. I reported for Global News in July of 2019. Pesholito strongly denied any involvement in real estate deals involving RCMP organized crime targets 
or associating with gangsters. There have been no charges against Pesholito, and a source informed me the RCMP hasn't pursued an investigation on the Pesholito file. But having inside sources confirm the RCMP was looking into Pesholito's um, association in Richmond added weight to the interesting things that I saw in Vancouver politics. Once Michelle Juno Katsuya told me evidence of espionage is hidden in plain sight, and I could see the evidence in WeChat pictures and Zoom group chats and hundreds of photos from Mandarin language websites linked to the Chinese state. Whether Pesholito understood it or not, he and many Canadian leaders were players in a social network intertwined with e-pirate targets and Chinese officials in Vancouver. This network was nebulous and complicated by design. It was Beijing's united front. This was a totally new area of investigation for me. It was different from the leaked document, leaked official documents and real estate records and court files I usually worked with. Now, I had a large collection of photographs that detailed frequent meetings of Chinese-Canadian political and business associations in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal and Ottawa. These were mainly open source records stored online and often crowdsourced from a circle of international researchers who mined Chinese state documents for evidence. I found many of these groups in Canada could be connected through official records in mainland China to Xi Jinping's United Front Work Department. Mm. Experts like Juno Katsuya, John Manthorpe, author of Claws of the Panda, Clive Hamilton, author of Hidden Hand, and Anne-Marie Brady, whose seminal study of the United Front's deep infiltration of New Zealand is cited by CSIS, helped me understand how the United Front's influence campaigns work. In basic terms, the United Front is political warfare, Manthorpe said. He said that Beijing had installed United Front agents in all Chinese consulates and embassies worldwide. These agents take orders from Beijing and controlled United Front groups in cities worldwide. In Canada, United Front agents attempt to infiltrate all levels of government by influencing elected officials, sponsoring candidates for elections, and persuading business and academic elites to adopt the Chinese Communist Party's foreign policy. Equally concerning, Manthorpe said, was the Chinese Communist Party's ideological usage of the United Front and efforts to demand racial loyalty from all Chinese immigrants worldwide. This is despite the fact that the majority of Chinese immigrants in Canada wanted nothing to do with Xi Jinping's United Front. Juno Katsuya told me CSIS investigations show the United Front is central to the Chinese Communist Party's intellectual property theft in Canada and Chinese intelligence attempts to spy on, harass, and attack Chinese Canadians who dare to speak out against Beijing. He said CSIS first recognized in the 1990s the United Front was using Chinese organized crime figures to cultivate Canadian politicians on one hand and to target Chinese dissidents on the other. And this was merely a continuation of the United Front's successful tactics in Hong Kong. Still, I had a shadow of a doubt. This hidden network had never been proven to exist in Canadian courts. 
and the Chinese state denied using the United Front on Canadian soil. <clears throat> so I had to look for concrete evidence elsewhere. The case of Ning Lapsang, a billionaire Macau's casino and real estate tycoon, alleged triad leader and United Front Work Department agent, was extremely illuminating. Excuse me, illuminating. <sighs> it's just a really long chapter. In August of 2019, a U.S. Court of Appeal affirmed Ning's conviction in an incredibly sophisticated Chinese Communist Party corruption scream, <laughs> scheme. Ning was indicted for bribing at least two United Nations officials, including former President John William Ash. Ning's Edward network was funneling millions to United Nations leaders through NGOs and Chinese spies operations in New York City, Macau, and Antigua. The case deserves a book of its own because it says so much about the party's global plans. For example, Ning was part of the Chinagate scandal, donating at least 220000 to presidential President Bill Clinton's Democratic Party in the 1990s, and actors identified by the FBI in Ning's case are central to Beijing's effort to build telecom and national security infrastructure in the Caribbean, South Pacific, and African countries. People's Liberation Army intelligence officers circle the case like vultures. In one of the case, many rabbit holes brought me back to the self-acknowledged Chinese intelligence operative Lai Shanxing. Patrick Ho, a Hong Kong lawmaker, also convicted of bribery and money laundering in the case, is intertwined with the very same Chinese oil conglomerate that Lai Shanqing ran before he fled to Vancouver. But I'll just focus on the piece of Nang's indictment that highlights an unexplored node of the Vancouver model. The implication is that Chinese organized crime networks are not just laundering drug cash through casino junkets. They are also using casinos and real estate investment to produce cash for Chinese Communist Party operations in North America, including political bribes. In intelligence speak, this would be called threat financing. An FBI affidavit explaining the scheme like this. The FBI's investigation has revealed that Ning Lapsang, Ning's secretary, and have concealed consistently the true purpose of their importations of more than 4.5 million in the United States currency, repeatedly falsely claiming the imported cash was being used for the purchase of art and antiques or real estate or gambling. The Wire said that Ning Lapsang caused to be sent to the casino was not only not the only wire that he has sent or caused to be sent to the United States. Ning has wired more than 19 million to bank accounts of entities and or individuals in the United States. It means that Ning's network was wiring in funds to bribe United Nations leaders in New York City, all under the cover of Ning's whale casino persona. But what was happening in Australia gave me more perspective on the Vancouver model's clandestine elements. Sydney Morning Herald investigative reporter Nick McKenzie broke the Crown Resort scandal in July of 2019 with a series of incredible stories. McKenzie wrote that gambling jump junket operations in Melbourne were linked to Chinese drug and sex trafficking cartels 
and the cartel leaders were running gambling junkets that flew in politically connected VIPs from China. But these same organized crime junket players also directed United Front influence peddling operations in Australia. The officials from China who jetted in to play Baccarat and lavish Australian politicians with cash were men worth billions, and they gambled hundreds of millions in Australian casinos each year. All of this mirrored what I was seeing in the Vancouver model. I knew Australia had banned a Macau casino junket executive that my sources said was the new boss of the 14K triad. But related Macau and Hong Kong tycoons were very invested in Vancouver real estate. And I already knew BC Lottery Corp and Australian casinos shared from the same pool of whales and corrupt Chinese officials. In just one example, in June of 2018, Henry So. The RCMP's top financial crimes investigator quickly shut down a Chinese official who had set up a River Rock Casino hotel room. I heard that So, whose family had immigrated to Canada from Hong Kong, had a deep understanding of Chinese transnational crime hierarchies and methodologies. And So decided to hook the Chinese official and have him deported rather than run a sprawling undercover case. The whale was already wanted for laundering $855 million in Australian casinos and various financial crimes in Las Vegas. Wow. But Nick McKenzie, McKenzie's investigation found something totally next level in Australia. Xi Jinping's own cousin, a corruption suspect named Meng Chai, it's Ming Chai, sorry, was counted among the Crown Casino VIPs from 2012 to 2013. Chi's cousin had bet $39 million at Crown Casino, the Wall Street Journal reported. Mackenzie's reporting tied to Ming Chai, to an alleged Crown Junket crime boss and United Front leader nicknamed Mr. Chinatown. The biggest player of all seemed to be Wang Xiangmo, an $80 million per year Crown high roller and leader of Guangdong Associated United Front groups in Australia. Wong got his Australian citizenship revoked and ruined Labour Party senator and fundraising rainmaker Sam Dastiari in the process. Dastiari had warned Wong of an Australian counterintelligence investigation against him and the United Front, and he had undermined the Labour Party's criticism of China's military expansion in the South China Sea after Wong threatened to take back $400,000 in political donation. Alex Josky boiled the issues down in his 2020 report. The party speaks for you. Foreign interference and the Chinese Communist Party's United Front system. In Australia and Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party had used organized crime groups to carry out United Front's work. Several cases suggest criminal activity may be tolerated by the Chinese government and even used as leverage in exchange for participation and political influence operations. The report says, in July of 2019, it was reported that two of Chiang Mo's Huang's United Front Council members were running illegal gambling junkets for Crown Casino and involved in money laundering. And the Huang case demonstrated that the soft spot in Australia's democracy is dark money. 
There is an arms race for donations between parties, Diastari Dastyari said after resigning, according to the Joski report. And when you, you've got individuals like Wong who are prepared to fork out millions of dollars, they get listened to. Joski also made fascinating, fascinating connections that helped explain increasingly brazen United Front activity. I was seeing in Vancouver... This vast espionage network was net designed to hide criminality, and it was expanding under Xi Jinping. Premier Zhu and Lai, one of the People's Republic of China's founding revolutionaries and a pioneer of the Chinese Communist Party's United Front, advocated deftly integrating the legal and illegal, Joski wrote. And Xi Jinping himself spent 15 years climbing the Chinese Communist Party's ranks in Fujian province, a hotbed of the United Front and intelligence work. This is scary stuff. And in hindsight, I would recognize increased political organization and messaging from the main United Front players I was looking at in Vancouver from 2018. For example, why did Han Guo, Paul Jin's lawyer, and a denier of human rights abuses in China, run for mayor in Richmond? That year was support from a group that takes to direction from Vancouver's Chinese consulate. Ooh. But I also need to make an important distinction. Unless RCMP or CSIS can prove covert quid, quid pro quo of offers taking place when United Front groups met with Canadian politicians, nothing illegal was taking place. Clinking wine glasses and passing the fundraising hat with ultra-wealthy pro-Beijing Chinese nationals isn't a crime for Canadian politicians. And as former CSIS director Ward Elcock told me, pro proving clandestine United Front political influence is extremely difficult. He added that China is the number one threat in Canada for political interference, and, but many nations are running similar campaigns and politicians of all ethnicities are targeted. Here is another important distinction I learned from experts. Not everyone who attends meetings where United Front and Chinese consulate leaders are present, is aware of and involved in Xi's interference campaigns. But what do I know from current and former CSIS ex experts is the more often you see certain community leaders or politicians at gatherings connected to China's United Front work department, the more likely these people are involved in United Front activity. And Canadian politicians, community leaders, and business leaders need to be aware of the threat of elite capture and espionage, a former CSIS officer told me. Because at these United Front events, Chinese consulates will place agents looking for talent to cultivate for Xi's foreign interference plans. Dot, dot, dot. <sighs> On August 18th, Alice ran, ran into the 10th church near Vancouver City Hall. She was late to join a meeting of about 70 gathered to pray for peace in Hong Kong. Most were elderly Hong Kong Canadians, but some younger Christians like Alice, name change for safety reasons, had protested in front of the Chinese consulate that day. Almost everyone had family members in Hong Kong, a city rupturing with the Chinese Communist Party's expanding national security laws. The events of July 21 at Yuanlong Subway station 
the mobs of triad thugs dressed in all-white savage Hong Kong democracy activists with knives and canes. Deeply worried Alice, Alice's community. They also knew that students in Australia's Queen, University of Queensland, including a media-savvy young human rights activist named Drew Pavlov, had been attacked in late July by pro-Beijing students. And in Vancouver, pro-Beijing forces were making similar threats to in WeChat groups. So when Vancouver police entered 10th Church to announce that about 100 pro-Beijing activists had surrounded the church shouting and waving large red flags, Alice's friends prayed for their own safety. It was terrifying. We were trying to figure out how to get out of the church, Alice told me. Most Canadians don't understand the fear and anxiety we were facing. Vancouver police escorted the 70 Hong Kong Canadians from the church while agents from the mob moved close to take pictures of their faces. Alice and her friends were shocked. This was Canada. They felt their freedom of religion and expression was being attacked. They felt their identities were being captured for the use of Chinese intelligence services, and this information could be used against family members in Hong Kong or mainland China. But because independent Vancouver journalist Bob Mackin was out filming outside the 10th church, the identities of the pro-Beijing mob were also recorded. And this led to a major breakthrough for me. Multiple records and sources confirmed the mob's apparent leader, who I'll call Mr. Yi, is also an elite leader of an umbrella association for about 100 Chinese-Canadian groups. It's a very special association. Former Chinese diplomat Chen Yonglin defined it as the Chinese Communist Party's controlling level, United Front Work Department group in Canada. Its leaders say they take direction from Chinese consulate United Front officials' records show. And when I ran Mr. Yi through my United Front meeting database, I hit the jackpot. Mr. Yi showed up frequently with prominent BC politicians. He was featured in a Chinese-language report that detailed the grand opening of his Vancouver China We Cultural Arts Club. Seated behind him at the 2018 opening were Ron Xiang Yuan, Liberal MP Joe Pesciolito, and Yang Tao Chen, a Vancouver real estate developer and then executive chairman of Canada's controlling level United Front Group, BC Liberal MLA Teresa Watt, and a Chinese consulate official filled out the front row. The crowd was thick with elite Vancouver realtors and alleged Chinese gangsters. After Tiger Juan and Pesci Salito and Yang Tao Chen stood to give speeches, Mr. Yi performed an opera solo. Later, Tiger's sprinkled on a grand piano. Tiger's frequent companion, Max, a tattooed leader of Canada's controlling level United Front Group, beamed obsequiously over Tiger's shoulder. While the crowd mingled, Pesci's Alito posed for multiple pictures with Tiger Yuan and Paul King Jin. It was a stunning demonstration of the connectivity between Chinese organized crime suspects and Canadian political leaders, and China Wee's list of sponsors included the Vancouver Chinese Consulate and the China Cultural Industry Association, CCIA, this indicated a tight relationship between Mr. Yi's Arts Club and Beijing. And here's the kicker. The CCIA and its president, 
a United Front official named Ben Shang had Zong. It's Zong had donated one million to Justin Trudeau's family and foundation. One million to Justin Trudeau's family foundation in 2016. This was four years before it emerged that another CCIA leader, a real estate tycoon from Markham, who met twice with Trudeau and Ben Shang in connection to the one million donation was also running the largest ever illegal casino discovered in Canada. Oh. And I found one more thing that stunned me. The VP of the CCIA happened to be a Hong Kong tycoon invested, investigated in Canada's 1990s Hong Kong probe for his alleged Sunion triad links and convicted for running an illegal betting ring. And incredibly, the CCIA's website trumpeted its successful engagement from two UN officials. Wow. Later taken down in the FBI corruption probe, including John Ash. Unbelievable. So the patterns I was seeing seem to echo some of the plots that emerged in the FBI's investigation of the alleged Macau triad boss Ning Lapsang. Given all these data points, it seems fair to question the 1 million CCIA donations to Trudeau's foundation. Trudeau's office didn't respond to my questions about Bing Zhang and the CCIA, but the federal liberals said Justin Trudeau has been clear that he has not been in any way associated formally or informally with the Pierre Elliott's Trudeau Foundation in many years and not in any respect while serving as prime minister. So there... uh. And my photo database showed these types of political gatherings repeated over and over in Vancouver and Toronto. The most illuminating example was September 2018 photo gallery that showed Pesci Solito and liberal fundraising rainmaker Raymond Chan gathered at the Warrior Fighting Dream boxing gym. My corporate record searches connected with Warrior Fighting Dream to alleged illegal casino addresses in Richmond. The gym's director addresses included Tiger Yuan's Richmond home and a number of locations in Beijing and Harbin. Jin and his wife, Xia Kui Wei, oh my God, were also listed as directors. The couple had been investigated for drug trafficking and money laundering and e-pirate. I found various addresses linked to Warrior Fighting Dream were also connected to the Water Club. This was the Chinese state accessory company run by Paul Jen and various big circle boys, including Peter Lap's son, according to RCMP documents. The Richmond Massage Parlor was investigated for prostitution involving underage females from mainland China, and it was connected to high-level drug traffickers and gun investigators. So just digest all of that for a minute. The warrior fighting dream is connected, allegedly, to criminal activities that are tearing the social fabric of Vancouver. Illegal casinos, drug trafficking, human trafficking, and prostitution of minors. Massive money laundering, violent loan sharking, gunplay, and weapons trafficking. Oh. But prominent Canadian politicians were lending their names and reputations to warrior fighting dream events. My record showed elite members of Canada's controlling level United Front Group also sponsored 
or your fighting dream events. For example, Yang Tao Chen spoke at a press conference with Paul Jen in the gym in July of 2019, where it was announced Warrior Fighting Dream was a Belt and Road project. Oh, no! And training center for the Chinese boxing team. Other members of Chen's group later claimed through a lawyer that they had no idea Paul Jen was to be associated with the press event. But key United Front members stood beside Jin and a BC NDP politician at the event for lots of photos, I found. I wasn't surprised to follow Paul Jin's Richmond real estate lawyer, Hong Go, was also an event sponsor. It was Hong Wei Kevin Soon, the Richmond crowdfunding developer. It was amazing what you could see in these United Front meeting photos. There was a consistent theme, political fundraising rainmakers and Chinese corruption suspects mingling with prominent Canadian politicians. Now, I could match identities from federal donation records that showed Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Joe Pesci Solito, and Vancouver Liberal MP Joyce Murray held multiple fundraisers and cash for access gatherings with the tycoons surrounding Rongxiang Yuan and his many United Front associates in Vancouver. The Globe and Mail reported that Mio Fei Pan, a former Chinese municipal official now developing real estate in Vancouver, hosted Trudeau in 2016 for a private fundraiser where he lobbied the Prime Minister on major Chinese investment proposals. I interviewed Pan who told me he was close with Rongqian Yuan in China. In fact, Yuan was the first to call Pan and offer condolences after Pan's 14 million Vancouver mansion was mysteriously torched in an October 2017 blaze, Pan told me. Pan said he knows nothing about RCMP casino money laundering investigations of Tiger Yuan. And he said Yuan is a great man of justice. Yeah, right. Back to the federal liberal cash for access meetings. I searched political campaign databases and found Justin Trudeau's Montreal Writing Association accepted $1,500 donation from Rong Chi Guan at a Richmond fundraiser in 2016. And I found a large photo of Trudeau and Yuan posing side by side and smiling in front of a Canadian flag. The photo was framed and displayed prominently at Yuan's own gala event in 2017. All the photos. At that dinner, Yuan hosted Kevin Sun and a number of Richmond Casino VIPs and United Front leaders. River Rock Casino was a sponsor of the event, according to the signage. And controversial River Rock VIP manager Lisa Gao was there. The photo with Trudeau was great optics for Tiger Yuan and guests posed to take photos of themselves using the Trudeau photo as a backdrop. Oh my god. This personal portrait must have suggested to Yuan's network that he was friendly with Canada's head of state. It gave him the look of legitimacy in Canada that he already had in China. There was nothing illegal about Yuan's donation to Trudeau, but it does look... Oh, come on. For Canada's leader to receive funds from Suspect 2 in an RCMP organized crime investigation? What? The liberals didn't answer my question about whether Tiger Yuan's donation to Trudeau raised concerns. 
the Liberal Party of Canada fully complies with Canada's Elections Act and all Elections Canada regulations for fundraising, a party spokesman wrote to me. What a turd polisher. Oh my God. Unbelievable. Sorry, I have to keep going. Anyone has repeatedly denied any wrongdoing or knowledge of RCMP investigations into his activity in Canada. He also used for defamation after Global News published a story documenting Yuan's meeting with Pesci Solito. And to be clear, there is nothing illegal about being a United Front leader in Canada. But experts in Australia and New Zealand and the United States told me the bar for nefarious United Front activity is met when the action is covert, coercive, and corrupt. And for me, something deeply corrupt occurred August 18th when Mr. Yi and the mob surrounded a Canadian church and took photographs of, a, of citizens gathered to pray for peace in Hong Kong. Alice and her community posted a report saying they have reasons to believe Chinese consular officials directed the pro-Beijing mob. And yet, Alice told me, Canadian governments have done nothing, not even a word of support. Now the community feels unsafe in their own country. I couldn't understand Ottawa allowing Canadians to be terrorized into silence about Beijing's draconian new national security laws in Hong Kong. Reports from Amnesty International and experts like Alex Josky said this is exactly what United Front's harassment in the Chinese diaspora aims to do. Silence dissent against the Chinese Communist Party and create a false image of unanimous support for Beijing's policies. So I decided to compile a dossier of relevant photographs, corporate documents, RCMP investigations, hierarchy charts, and United Front Work Department documents. And I shared the brief with Clive Hamilton and Anne-Marie Brady. These are academic experts who have testified to various state councils about United Front networks and activity. I asked them to review my research and come to some conclusions. I focused on a few key people. The general, Ron Chiang Yuan, describes himself as a political warrior for the motherland. I'm butchering these poor Chinese names so badly. These uh, He made the statements that his official Sino-Vietnam War dic- diary, a collection of writings and photographs of his exploits as a young People's Liberation Army platoon leader. In one diary entry, Tiger Yuan wrote, he was able to stand up to the party's training for me for many years and be worthy of the title of the Communist Party of China rushing to victory, and even rushing to death. These were more than romantic scribblings of a 24-year-old platoon leader from Liaoning. The diary was published by the Military Intelligence Department of the People's Liberation Army General Staff, and my RCMP sources believed Yuan's connection to Chinese intelligence were significant. My compilation of records also showed that Tiger Yuan's co-director... In his Canada Chinese Association for Promoting Friendly Relations, included a Richmond gun shop owner and real estate developer named Hai Pengyang, who was probed in RCMP weapons trafficking, illegal hunting junket, and suspicious cash transaction investigations. 
Yang has not responded to my request for comment. Another director was Kenny, a young Chinese man identified as Suspect 7 in the RCMP hierarchy charts. The other directors were Paul King Jin's VIP Gamblers. One was also director of a BC-numbered company connected to the Shangdong, port city of Qingdao, and Jin's Waterhue Massage Parlor in Richmond. Tiger Yuan and his friends rubbed shoulders with many politicians. But my dossier focused on a particular politician, Burnaby Council Member James Wang, because Wang appeared so frequently with the Vancouver model suspects. Also, James Wang was a BC NDP candidate in 2015, and this fact really blew my mind. His campaign director was Max, one of the men often seen at Tiger Yuan's side. I felt that this was alarming because Max scored FaceTime with NDP leader John Horgan while simultaneously leading political operations for Canada's controlling level United Front Work Department. James Wang is also named as honorary advisor in the group. The group, which was investigated in 2018 for vote buying allegations, has funded Wang's campaign. The RCMP did not file charges in the vote buying case. My dossier showed that James Wang had corporate ties to Kevin Soon, the Richmond real estate developer identified as Suspect 3 in RCMP hierarchy charts that name Rongxiang Yuan, Yuan sorry, as Suspect 2. And James Wang was pictured repeatedly in photos that suggest personal relationships with Rongxiang Yuan and Kevin Soon and Paul King Jen. To boil it all down, not a very flattering picture. And I found that a number of sources in the Chinese-Canadian political community also had concerns about James Wang. In one case, NDP federal candidate alleged that James Wang approached her at a Chinese-Canadian community meeting and promised her campaign staffing and financing. The approach happened shortly after China's consul general expressed interest in her political candidacy, she told me. But... There was a condition to James Wang's offer of political support, she said. She needed to pledge support to Beijing on issues such as the persecution of Falun Gong. This proposal looked like a textbook United Front quid pro quo, she told me. But there was more. Another BC political candidate informed me that James Wang, seen as a fundraising rainmaker for the BC NDP, and because of this, James Wang seemed to enjoy... Favor, it, with the party heavyweights surrounding Premier John Horgan. This candidate told me of another accusation that fascinated me. It was alleged that Wang told a colleague he was interested in the bending farmland, bending, bending the farmland zoning uh, uh, protections in order to construct a hotel mansion. I obtained an email from a credible source that alleged Wang had said he wanted to build such a mansion with facilities including private gentlemen's club to accommodate wealthy Chinese officials visiting Vancouver. In the context of the transnational organized crime suspects that James Wang is surrounded by, to my mind, this scenario seemed comparable to a Chicago municipal politicians wanting to build a speakeasy in the area of Al Capone, and I obtained an email from a Chinese-Canadian community source expressing concern about James Wang's interest and his status with BCNDP. 
I just find it incredible that these politicos are always fishing for ways to reach into the ethnic blocks, this one being the mainland Chinese and their dollars, without doing their due diligence and background checks, the source wrote in 2017. A senior Chinese-Canadian NDP member responded, It would be our country's undoing if our political parties indiscriminately let such characters into their folds. James Wang has not responded to many of my detailed questions about these allegations and his documented associations. But in one response, he stated unequivocally, unequivocally, he is not involved in the United Front and does not associate with or have any relationship with criminal suspects. And a lawyer for Kevin Soon said that Soon had no connections to organized crime or Chinese state activity. So... My dossier curated intelligence and evidence from a wide array of sources, RCMP Intel, WeChat group photos, social media collection, corporate records, civil court records, human sources, emails. I winnowed it all down to one central node, Rong Xian Yuan, James Wang, Kevin Sun, and Clive Hamilton provided in-depth comments after reviewing my research. He concluded James Wang is tightly connected with Yuan and Soon, and James Wang is involved in the United Front groups that influence Canadian politics, and he meets with consular officials. Mm. It's been known for some time that Chinese Communist Party uses criminal gangs to intimidate and beat up pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. As of recently, Hamilton wrote, but we are also seeing crooks and gangsters becoming involved in political influence and subversion activities in countries like Canada and Australia. They do this by setting up Chinese Communist Party endorsed community arts or business associations or by being appointed to senior positions in existing organizations. And Hamilton said he believes that Canada is deeply compromised. The fact is, the Vancouver politics and business is now riddled with Communist Party agents and informers, he wrote. And Toronto is not far behind. China's interference in Canada's elections is now far more dangerous than Russia's meddling in U.S. elections. Anne-Marie Brady reviewed my dossier and replied briefly. If the individuals you cite are at such high-profile United Front events, it is for a reason, she wrote. The information listed is credible and shows United Front organizations. I remember how mind-blowing I was when I listened to Bruce Ward explain how the RCMP learned Chinese organization, organized crime is networked with legitimate professionals and tycoons. That was September of 2017, but Ward had omitted the most stunning fact. The whale in the network is the Chinese Communist Party. And now I had evidence of the network's capacity to harm Canadian citizens. I found yet another case in September of 2019. Ternisa Matsedik-Kira, a Uyghur woman, was protesting in Vancouver against the mass detention of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. She stood holding a placard as Tong Xiaoling and another Chinese consulate leaders, sorry, and other Chinese consulate leaders and members of Vancouver's controlling level United Front Work Group celebrated a Chinese arts event at Vancouver Art Gallery. 
A Chinese woman approached Ternisa repeatedly and told her to leave. Ternisa told me she got a call from a man with a strong Mandarin accent about a week later. The guy told me I have to stop what I'm doing, stop my activism, or, or else you have to worry about your family in China, Ternisa told me. I said, who are you? And he didn't answer. And then he hung up. I felt extremely shocked because I live in Canada and I feel alone and unprotected. I have felt 100% this call is from the Chinese government. I'll keep this simple. I obtained the photo evidence of the woman confronting Ternisa at the Vancouver Art Gallery. And I have photos of the same woman monitoring events at the 10th Church Mop. The woman is a journalist for the Vancouver website run by her husband and a former China Daily editor who is also a leader of Vancouver's controlling level United Front group. And photos showed me this woman and a small group of reporters from Chinese state media meeting privately with Rong Chang Yuan. Reporters, politicians, tycoons, and transnational organized crime suspects. What possible common bond could these people from such divergent backgrounds have? All of my evidence pointed to one factor, Xi Jinping's magic weapon. And that is the end of Compromise Nodes. It's a hell of a ride, guys. Unbelievable. I'm so glad you stuck it out. This has actually exceeded chapter 12 in length and duration, but boy, was it worth it. I'm so glad you stuck around. So this is all for tonight's uh, reading of Willful Blindness. We will return tomorrow at 7.20 p.m. to read Chapter 16, Strike Back Hard. So, so just stick with it. We'll be here at 7.20 with more reading. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.